2: Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And, well, it's that time of year when it's appropriate to take a very special look into the past, and a special look at that world of the Gilded Age. And that means a look at people that, well, may never have quite left, and, as some would believe, just may still be with us in one form or another today. For this look at a few ghosts of the Gilded Age, I am very excited to share with you a special episode from the Bowery Boys archives where Greg and Tom take a special journey into the Gilded Age of New York to do just that.
3: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And good evening, this is Tom Myers. With the Bowery Boys annual Halloween special. This time, we're focusing on creepy places and spooky stories that zoom in on New York during the Gilded Age.
2: Now, Greg, this is probably our favorite show of the year to do. At <laughs> sure. least we have the most fun. We do, and, maybe, and we will. Maybe it's because we get in the mood every year. As regular listeners know, Greg usually goes a little bit overboard with the decorations <laughs> here in the studio. So what do we have today? We've got... Are, 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 is that a new string of lights a new on the string
3: wall? yeah a new string of uh, like black
2: lights yeah. and orange pumpkin lights in the back we have candles all over and then most notably as a new addition, I believe this year mm-hmm. we have a black raven sitting right here on the on the counter it,
3: it, it will um, it's actually a crow in fact uh, her name is Cheryl Cheryl Crow <laughs> and she's the first official Barry bird to join the show
2: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Look, all I want to do is have some fun, Greg, Greg <laughs> yes. and, and tell, some, tell some spooky stories. I think y- you have too, I have too. Yes,
3: as, as per tradition, mm-hmm. we only tell each other sort of the vague themes of the ghost stories we're about to share so we can elicit some surprise, and just to make sure that we haven't duplicated ourselves... So sit back, recline in your most luxurious leather armchair, and prepare to be visited by the ghosts of Gilded Age New York.
2: All right, Greg. Well, I'm sure we're all eager to jump into these ghost stories. But first, let's frame this episode. Sure. Um, It's called The Ghosts of Gilded Age New York. So what precisely is or was the Gilded Age?
3: And we drop that phrase in our show all the time. But let's start take a step back and define it a little bit.
2: I think most people think it's something vaguely late 19th century.
3: Yeah. So essentially, it's the period after the Civil War Mm -hmm. up until around 1900. Sometimes people will extend it to 1910. It's just a certain era of prosperity in the United States and typified in New York by all of the moguls and all of the great developments. And the robber barons and great wealth. So keep that definition in the back of your head as we explore four stories that take place in this era and are all based on real places, real events, and real people who lived and died in the New York City area.
2: All right. So where are you taking us first?
3: Well, I thought since we just did a three-part episode on the Bronx that Mm -hmm. it would be appropriate if our very first ghost story would be set in the Bronx. This is about one of the creepiest houses to ever be constructed in all of the United States. It was known in its day as the House of Many Mysteries, but more famously known by another name. For Tom, this story is called The Secrets of
2: Casanova Mansion. Casanova in the Bronx Casanova
3: in the Bronx then of course not the romantic Italian lover of that name but another famous Casanova now this story takes place in Hunt's Point in in the South Bronx, uh, we mentioned Hunts Point in our third part of the Bronx trilogy as the location of a terminal market.
2: Right, the huge market where I think ha- like half the city's meat passes yeah. through daily. But
3: I'm going to take you back to 1859 when this
2: land was almost entirely
3: undeveloped, and there were a few private property owners that, as we had discussed,
2: built impressive manors. So 1859. Hadn't the railroad just come through recently? Mm -hmm.
3: And that's just a little bit over to the west in 1841. And when that opened, all of these small towns like Morrisania and Mott Haven developed around those railroad stations. So it was getting a little more populated to the west, but was still very spacious and underpopulated over here. Okay. Perfect spot for a mansion. Or so thought Benjamin Morris Whitlock. Now, Mr. Whitlock was a merchant with deep ties to the South, a very successful merchant who owned a profitable store in New York specializing in Southern products like cigars, cotton, and whiskey.
2: Cotton. So he's tied to the economy of the South right oh, yeah. before the Civil War. Yeah,
3: his business was built on the back of the slave trade. And so as a result, no surprise to find that he's a ardent Southern sympathizer. Well, in 1859, he built a lavish estate here in Hunts Point on 50 acres of land. It was the biggest house in Westchester County. It was a perfectly square house, which is very curious. When you rode up to see it, it looked like a a fortress. It had 100 rooms. The decor and furniture were imported from France. Mahogany wooden staircases that wound up four floors. The doors, the external doors, were all bronze and glistened in the sunlight. They said you could see it for miles as you were riding towards the house. One of the more famous rooms was the Louis XIV room, with portraits of the French ruler, white marble, and mirrors on all of the walls.
2: Wow, this sounds totally over the top, um, but it doesn't really sound that spooky. Well, it does have 100 rooms. That's a little bit spooky. (laughs) Well,
3: get this. The house is actually built on what was a small island back then in 1859, and it was separated by a drawbridge. Said the New York Times, quote, The entrance to the grounds had a drawbridge and an immense iron gateway as the carriage approached. The horses would step on a hidden spring, and the bridge would drop, and the gate fly open as if by magic, unquote.
2: Okay, that's getting spookier. Mm Mm-hmm. Hidden springs. Well, it gets a little bit better.
3: There were also, underneath the house, vast subterranean tunnels. There was a whole level that was built for the purposes of, as they said, storing wine. So a huge wine cellar. Mm Mm-hmm. But below that, the house had another set of tunnels that were attached to wells, and that's where they got their drinking water. In addition to all of that, some of these rooms in the four floors of this 100-room house had several safes and vaults scattered throughout the house. And there were secret rooms that have barely been written about that defy description or explanation. But even after all of that, when I read accounts of this house, Mm -hmm. I also get the impression that there's something very, very wrong about this house. But in the buildup to the Civil War, things got very bad for Mr. Whitlock. In 1860, his young daughter died. The following year, his mother died. And then in 1862, now that the the war is up and raging in the South, Whitlock declares bankruptcy as the war had essentially cut off his business. On August 15th, 1863, Whitlock himself dies. And the widow flees the house because obviously she can't live in this 100-room house by herself. And so for a time, the house remained overgrown with no occupants, swallowed up in vines and weeds in a tangled thicket. It was around this time that they began calling it Whitlock's Folly. And they called it this because, as the New York Tribune would say, quote, "...many people thought it elaborate beyond the requirements of the time," unquote. People in the neighborhood who would ride by in their carriages they would hear cries come from the house during this period, echoing through all of these rooms on a late night. But as I had said, no one was living in the house. And then a twist to this tale, a surprise. For in 1867, the house is offloaded. The whole property was sold to a Cuban sugar importer named incensio Casanova. Wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> a true twist, indeed. A
2: sweet twist.
3: During this period, Cuba was engaged in a war with Spain. We would later call it the Ten Year War. So he would harbor people who were engaged in this conflict. Now, I'm So not- all
2: those rooms came in handy?
3: They did. They were soon quickly populated. In fact, not only did the rooms come in handy, but so too did those subterranean levels. But for a new purpose for the store of ammunitions and rifles that were then sent down to Cuba for the conflict, stored in those dank, dark rooms. There were also tunnels that led to the East River itself. Uh, We don't know exactly what the original purpose of those tunnels were, but they were in heavy use during Casanova's habitation of the house. According to author Henry Collins Brown, quote, Mysterious vessels under cover of darkness appeared close by like dark specters and sailed away again on their secret errands under the same mantle of mysteriousness, unquote. Well, by the 1880s, the house was abandoned again, and there was no one there to tend to it or to keep to the lawn. So soon, people in this annexed territory, for indeed by the 1880s, it was part of New York. People around the area began speaking of this house as being kind of legendary and affected and haunted. Visitors often snuck into the house at night to to further explore. You'd, You'd have your Scooby gang with you, and you'd break into the house for a night of cheap thrills. Mr. Brown, who I had mentioned earlier, he had a chance to wander through the house. These were his observations, Quote, Massive wrought-iron chandeliers adorned halls and chambers. On my visit, I found bell-pulls in the immense apartments, which I vigorously rang, causing mysterious ringings in distant rooms below with true ghost-like effect. But never a servant appeared. Chance led us into the strangest place of all, the secret chamber containing the great safe, itself as big as a room. The entrance was by a hidden door. The place was lighted by opaque oval panels that exactly resembled the surrounding woodwork. High up beneath the lofty roof was a mysterious place, but whether it was an elaborate chapel or an immense ballroom, we never learned. Unquote. Another writer, Henry Tecumseh Cook, also wandered through here in the 1890s and found something extraordinary in the cellar. Quote, there were numerous stairways leading to the cellar, some of which were rather risky to descend as they were narrow and dark. The place was musty and malodorous and shrouded in darkness. With the aid of a lantern, the old tunnel was located. On either side of the tunnel were half a dozen cells built of solid rock with heavy iron hinges riveted to both the floor and walls. To what use they could have been put can only be surmised.
2: Cells like like prison cells in the basement? What what have yes. they been built for?
3: Well, we don't really know. Some people believe they might be associated with the Cuban revolutionaries, like perhaps prisoners. Okay. Uh, Maybe or spies. Casanova built them. Yes, possibly. But others have suggested something else. That these prison chambers date back to Whitlock who may have had unspeakable sadist desires, something so unspeakable and wicked that it cursed his family forever, leading, of course, to the devastating misfortunes in his life.
2: Whatever happened to to this mansion? Is it still around? No. By the early 20th century, it
3: had been demolished, all 100 rooms of it. And the whole area had been cleared. Now, freight yards were built on portions of this property. There was a plaster mill, and other manufacturing concerns were developed around here and completely swept any evidence of the house away. However, to this day, there is still in the Bronx, in this area... There's a Whitlock Avenue, there's a Casanova Street, and PS62 is
2: named for Incencio Casanova. Wow, well, they don't build them like that anymore, <laughs> no, do they? They, they certainly they don't. They hardly build them like that at the time.
3: <laughs> right. it, it reminds me a little bit of the Winchester house, you know, that famous house in California that's legendarily haunted and also filled with rooms and staircases that don't go anywhere. So that's sort of the New York version. If you're enjoying the ghosts of the Gilded Age, head over to the Bowery Boys podcast after you're done with the Gilded Gentleman, and hear our newest Halloween show, Ghost Stories by Gaslight. Five freaky and frightening stories derived from famous urban legends and actual newspaper reports. Terrifying stories of Fordham University, the Poe Cottage, the Public Theater, Greenwich Village, the Lower East Side, and Riverside Drive. That's Ghost Stories by Gaslight on the Bowery Boys Podcast.
1: NetCredit is here to
2: say yes because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or Lending Partner Banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards
2: Well, my story also takes place in the early 1860s, as the Civil War is breaking out, when something very strange was happening at a townhouse all the way down on West 27th Street. In Manhattan. In Manhattan. Something strange that was widely reported that nearly brought down the entire neighborhood. For this is the tale of The Footsteps Upstairs. Our story starts, actually, nearly a decade after this mysterious event in a news piece that ran on September 15, 1870 in the New York Times, quote, Who of our readers does not remember the famous ghost of 27th Street and the intense excitement created by the publication of its marvelous doings? It is less than 10 years ago that the goblin appeared. For a while, the metropolis was fairly wild with interest. The details of the occurrence are doubtless fresh in the minds of everyone who reads these very lines, but the secret history of the affair has never been published before today. Wow. Uh, well, the story's not fresh in my mind.
3: So uh, could you uh, recount it for us in your, in your best sinister voice?
2: Well, I'll get to the sinister voice in a bit, but okay. let's stick to remembering the 1860s. Mm-hmm. You described what was happening up in the Bronx, but remember that down in Manhattan, the city was growing extraordinarily quickly at this time with waves of immigrants, Irish and German, coming to the shore. And so here we are. In late 1862, the city has been growing quickly for decades, and anyone who could move uptown to newer housing developments had already moved. And that was the case around the area of our story now, uh, near where Samuel Ruggles had developed Gramercy Park on East 20th and 21st Streets in the 1830s. The townhouses that surrounded that private park were quickly some of the most fashionable in the city. By the 1860s, the townhouses, the lined stretch of East 27th Street, however, were facing a most unsavory situation. These were nice, comfortable residences for well-off families. It made sense, given their proximity to, to Gramercy Park. Most of the residents owned their homes, but for whatever reason, that year, in 1862, eight of these homes had become vacant all at the same time, to the shock of the neighbors along that well-off street, all of these vacant properties were rented to enterprising characters with the most lascivious of intentions.
3: Mm, So a little bit of the tenderloin was was sneaking eastward, I think, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, the article um, from the Times never really spelled it out completely. The one I'm quoting explained it as, quote, they were all taken over by disreputable persons and put to an Infamous use. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. They're talking about brothels. Mm. The neighbors were beside themselves. What were they going to do? To their horror, it seemed like business was great and customers were streaming in and out at all hours. Well, one neighbor discussed the situation with a helpful nearby resident who suggested that they try glimmering out the nuisance glimmering out like a dance move or something this is not a dance okay. move. <laughs> it involves light though they thought that that these types of businesses they could really only function in the shadows and that patrons would scatter away if a spotlight were turned upon them both figuratively and literally and so by order of the superintendent of police a man named john kennedy eight patrolmen were assigned to lantern posts outside each of these eight homes of disrepute they'd shine their bullseye lanterns on people coming and going it was the latest thing in flashlight technology Mm -hmm. or flash lantern technology (laughs) But it didn't seem to do much to dissuade these patrons because it was really just adding lighting to the street. Well,
3: it it sounds like something you might do to discourage raccoons from digging through your trash can, (laughs) but these are human beings who learn very quickly what it is.
2: It had never been easier to find these places.
3: (laughs) So this is kind of some goofy fun, a little, Mm -hmm. some little rascals-ish activity happening here. Um,
2: Is there a ghost? Well, so this is what happened. Instead of scaring away the clients, because of this glimmering out, business actually improved, and the neighbors saw their land values tumble even further. Well, at about this time, in late 1862, reports started to circulate in the newspaper that there was a ghost haunting an address on East 27th Street. The story appeared in the papers for weeks. Do we know specifically where the house is on East 27th Street? Well, the reporter took care not to divulge the actual address, perhaps out of you know, respect for the family living there. New Yorkers, obviously, were brimming with curiosity. There's nothing like a ghost story mm-hmm. in the paper after all. And so many headed up to East 27th to walk the entire length, looking at all the homes and speculating and wondering <laughs> which one was haunted by this specter.
3: Sounds like a fun thing to do on a Saturday night that anyone
2: happened to see the ghost. Oh, well, everybody thought they saw a ghost, Mm -hmm. or at least by the time they got back to their friends and had retold and retold what they had heard. Some saw, you know, lights and uh, glowing orbs inside some windows, while others swore that they saw a floating head inside another window. Wow. Within days, it seemed like everybody had seen something at every residence (laughs) along East 27th Street. But meanwhile, the the neighbors had had some success in closing two of the brothels. Those houses sat empty for months, with nobody wanting to buy an old house of ill repute on a haunted street. In early spring of 1863, one of the homes was rented out to an auctioneer who worked down on Nassau Street. Now, from this article that appeared in the Times, quote, Late in the afternoon, A van arrived with some furniture, consisting, however, of only the carpets, a lounge, like a sofa, Mm -hmm. and a few chairs. Two ladies of the family also came to superintend matters and direct the carpets to be placed in one of the rooms on the parlor floor, and the other articles downstairs in the front basement. Then they went over the entire house, taking minute note of everything— to determine the probable amount of cleaning required, and after locking all the doors, went away, to return early the next morning and be ready to receive the remaining household effects. They arrived early the next day, unlocked the house, and went through the upstairs, opening up windows to let in light and fresh air. But then they went downstairs, quote, going into the front basement and opening the blinds, they gazed about them in blank astonishment. The lounge and chairs were gone. With beating hearts, they then went to the rear basement, and their breath was almost stopped by reason of what they saw. There were the lounge and the chairs in a semicircle around the stove, which was red hot and glowing. Yet they were sure that there was not a coal on the premises. The gas light was burning on full from the center fixture yet they were certain that there was no meter in the house. How bizarre. Had someone broken into the house? Well, it was clear that nobody had broken in, because they examined all the windows and the doors. They were all locked up just as they had left them. Something had not only visited the house, but moved the heavy sofa and the chairs from one room to the other, started a fire in the range, and lit gas lamps without any gas connection. They looked in shock at each other, and as one whispered, Ghosts,
0: ghosts ghosts ghosts
2: ghosts They both raced up the stairs and outside the front door and screamed for the police to come to their aid. Luckily, there were plenty of police officers still working on the street. They explained the situation with breathless detail, and the officer seemed shocked and very nervous by their story. He insisted that they go back inside so that he could see exactly what had transpired, and and they did with him close by their side. At their insistence, he called for a moving van, which arrived and reloaded their possessions to head back downtown to their old home. And they dropped the keys at his feet never to re-enter this haunted house again. Of course, their screaming had attracted a lot of attention, and by the time the horses pulled them off, The streets were packed with curiosity seekers and gossips and reporters, and and naturally, the size and scope of the haunting grew as well. For days, these crowds gathered around the house, and the police even needed to guard it out front. Well, on the bright side, I guess we know where the ghost
3: is now. No wandering up and down Um, the street anymore. I
2: I mean, apparently, it just made himself at home. Did we ever find out the identity of this spirit? Well, unfortunately for ghost lovers, the story was revealed in that article that was published seven years later in 1870. It was revealed to be less spooky than previously thought. Remember all those policemen who had been hanging around outside Mm -hmm. all those brothels? At the time of the haunting, there were six of them still stationed on the street. And on winter nights, it got downright freezing. Quote, when the streets became deserted... They had nothing to do but whistle catcalls to each other and transform themselves into jumping jacks to keep their blood from chilling. And so they, they, you know, they did what anybody would do. They looked for a warm escape and they found one in the abandoned house. One of the officers had found that the sidewalk coal chute had been left unlocked and it was wide enough to allow easy access to the house's cellar. On cold nights, they'd let themselves in and even bring along coal that they had stolen from a nearby mm. grocer to burn in the basement range. And fortunately for them, the gas had been left on in the house, so they could even light up the gas jet for a little bit of lighting. And, and to this back room, they'd retreat. The officers, however, hadn't realized that their little clubhouse had been rented out because they worked the night shift. The night of the big move... The first officer entered the basement as per usual. Alone in the basement, he happened to look in the front basement room and see all that furniture and, and assumed it was left over from the previous tenant. How convenient. He obviously realized that, you know, the sofa and the chairs would be far more comfortable for the guys to, ro- to relax on, so he dragged it in, arranging it around the stove and the lamp. Just then, however, he had, he had added coal to the stove when he heard a noise overhead. A bumping and steps. He immediately realized that the house was, in fact, occupied. He looked for a quick escape and found a window that would lock behind him. He snuck out and alerted the other patrolmen that the jig was up. The other officers swore to secrecy, even if it meant putting up with the ghost stories and crowds.
3: Well, so that's a logical explanation,
2: certainly. But didn't you say that those women came back in the morning? Well, yeah. And this was after midnight. There's, there's that little detail. Although the policemen could, could easily explain the moving furniture to each other, they never really could explain those footsteps past midnight.
3: Well, that was a fright, Tom. We have <laughs> two more spooky stories of the Gilded Age after the commercial break. The longest
0: field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed...
3: So while we were on commercial break, Bowery Bird Cheryl Crow was telling us her ghost story while we were enjoying some of these donuts. Mm. Very, very haunting, Mm. Cheryl.
2: Yeah, the the haunted nests of old New York. Frightful, frightful tales, Greg. Frightful tales.
3: Well, the next story is... Quite serious. And I think this is one of the most disturbing tales we've ever shared on this show. So many times when we do a podcast and we're talking about the Gilded Age, we're always talking about the winners, right? Mm. We're always talking about those people who made a million dollars and became huge successes, right?
2: Right. Detailing their mansions. Aren't they spectacular?
3: Yes. But the thing is, is there a majority of stories of people who did not quite make it. Now, we'll be spending most of the story in Queens, in particular, south of the village of Woodside. But it was still quite rural around that area, extremely so. In fact, this story will take place in an old two story farmhouse on a country road where horrifying things seem naturally to occur. For the name of this story is The Farmhouse of Doom. <laughs> The story starts in New York, in Manhattan, in fact, on Fifth Avenue, namely at the Windsor Hotel at Fifth Avenue and 46th Street, a stately vanguard of a hotel when it was constructed in 1871.
2: Wait, this Ritzy Hotel was constructed in the 1871 all the way up on 46th and 5th? That seems kind of far
3: north. Well, it was ahead of its time. What they were taking advantage of is the construction of Grand Central Depot, which Mm. just opened in October of that year. But its proprietor, John T. Daly, he liked to take some risks. And he speculated that wealthy residents of the neighborhood up here on 5th Avenue would take a shine to the Windsor because it would attract businessmen looking for a top-notch accommodation. He saw the future, and Daly wanted to be part of this rising wealthy class. He wanted to be a leading citizen among these gentlemen and be invited to their Gilded Age dinner clubs.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, so was Mr. Daly and his
3: hotel, were they successful? Well, it was successful. I would say that the hotel Mm -hmm. uh, became very successful. But as the years went on, it became increasingly obvious that Daly had sunk way too much money into this and that he owed tens of thousands of dollars Mm. by this time. And as a result, he became very distraught and very concerned about his own future. Well, on Tuesday, May 1st, 1877, just a few years later... He left his home at 4 East 47th Street, saying that he had business to attend to at the Windsor. But he didn't return home that evening, nor the evening afterwards. So the family naturally reported his disappearance to the police. That Thursday, all the big papers had front-page headlines that said things like, Prominent citizen missing. Now, out in Long Island, this location that I hinted at earlier... Mm -hmm. The farmhouse? Yes. Now, that Sunday a man named George Bagley was walking down what they called Old Astoria Road. So George came upon this abandoned farmhouse in a field. We don't know what reasons, but George decided to take a look inside the farmhouse. The doors were opened. It was abandoned. Perhaps he was looking for furniture or he just wanted to take a nap. So he walked in and he looked through the living room. It was barren of any furniture. He saw a man's hat on the mantelpiece and on the floor he saw a necktie so obviously he became a little bit more curious so he began creeping up the rickety stairs of the farmhouse very slowly and there on the second floor he saw such a sight that he almost fell back down the stairs ran from the house and ran to town to report what he had seen well what had he seen in the doorway of the very first bedroom on that second floor was the body of a man hanging from the door. So George had run into town and the examiner cut the body down and, and the body was removed from
2: the house for further examination. So had, had John Daly escaped off to this farmhouse in order to, to hang himself? It was indeed
3: John T. Daly, but he had not died from a hanging. He had been shot with a pistol Investigators of the day concluded that Daly had been a very depressed man and had decided to end his life in this very unusual way. But no one could really explain the pistol shot. Newspapers the following days were trying to piece together all these clues. There was even one paper I saw that had an actual drawing of the position of the pistol in relation to where the body was, and an elaborate explanation, which kind of seems implausible, except for those, of course, who engage in the consumption of Agatha Christie novels.
2: But wait, I still don't quite understand. How could he have shot himself and been hanging from a doorway? That seems impossible.
3: Yes, it's very mysterious. And there's a second question that's hovering over this whole thing, and that is, why here? What is it about this farmhouse? Well, at this little farmhouse here to the south of Woodside, if it seemed creepy before, now it held a terrible reputation. So I dug a little bit into what the provenance of this farmhouse was, whose, whose it was, It seems that in the Dutch days of old New Netherlands, that this had been a land holding that was owned by a French Protestant named Carol de Beauvoir. And the land had stayed in the de Beauvoir family for generations. And at some point in the early 1800s, members of this particular clan had built this farmhouse. But by the 1860s, the home had been entirely abandoned. Another significant change to the neighborhood is in 1848, nearby Calvary Cemetery was opened. The first burial was in 1848.
2: So the farmhouse is located right next to this active graveyard? Right. It's very, very, very nearby. It's very close. Okay. Now, this is how
3: the house was described by the New York Sun in 1879. Quote, On the old wood road that leads from Woodside to Laurel Hill, in a lonely spot on the De estate stands an old wooden house. It was built with two stories and a basement, and originally must have been rather pretentious country residents. But now it is in the last stages of dilapidation. The windows are sashless, the doors off the hinges, the front steps have rotted down, and on one side the basement has fallen in. Directly opposite, across the sandy road, is a pond of stagnant water. People call this house... Haunted. And the house had been turned into a haunted place, of course, to dare your friends to enter. A certain group of mischievous children attempted this on Saturday afternoon, September 13th, 1879, a couple years later. A group of boys were out frog hunting at a local pond. Sounds very uh, Huckleberry Finn. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, they were headed home Mm -hmm. and they passed this old haunted house. And they all remember the tale of grim discovery when they were kids, you know, two years earlier. They kind of remembered that. Now, here it was again. And one of the boys said, hey, I dare you all to go run up to the haunted house. Nobody wanted to go, obviously. The more ornery of the boys snatched a hat. Off the head of the quietest boy and then ran up to the house and right at that spot where the basement door where the basement wall had collapsed in he took the hat and just threw it into the house well the boy obviously had some common sense and didn't want to go into the house but he would probably get in trouble if he didn't retrieve his hat so he took a deep breath and he stepped down into that hole into the wall down into the basement His friends were waiting outside, probably laughing at him. When the boy shot out of the house, his face was completely white from fright. For what he had seen in the basement was the body of a man hanging in the exact same manner as that of Daly's two years earlier, only this time in the cellar. So the boys ran To the town of Woodside, they grabbed Constable Duffy, who returned to the house with a group of neighbors. The constable and the neighbors were met with a horrific sight in the basement. It was indeed a man with red hair who was hanging from a cord. However, the cord was not long enough so that his knees were actually touching the ground he was wearing a brown suit, he had $1.20 in his pocket, and a small notebook filled with business cards. In that notebook, the final entry was on July 26th, and it said in German, Geswungen, kein Geld, kein Gold. Forced, no money, no gold. Now, what alarmed officials the most was what they found on the third page, for there appeared a diagram of the very house that they were standing in, with a little note scrawled at the bottom. Ik come I'm coming. He was searching for this house. Officials concluded that there was no way that this man could have perished by hanging in this particular position, and that this man, whose name was also John must have died in another way. They believe perhaps by poison. So what would have been the motivations of this poor man? His family was later interviewed, and they, and they were, of course, horrified and sunk into grief. And they did express that he had had some financial troubles, perhaps something similar to Daly. But the big question remains here, what drew these two men to this seemingly random farmhouse here to the south of Woodside?
2: That's horrifying. Where where is this house? What happened to it? So, in all the newspaper accounts that
3: I mm-hmm. read, no specific address was ever listed. Again, this was a, a farmhouse. It was very remote. They probably felt no need to put an address. But we know that it was near Calvary Cemetery. And the interesting thing about Calvary is it rapidly expanded. This was a burial site for a lot of working class Irish. And so, you know, during the 1870s, 80s, 90s, it was a very active cemetery. So it had to keep expanding. So as a result, a lot of the land around here was taken up to develop further plots.
2: So it's possible then that this this cursed farmhouse was engulfed and eventually overtaken by a burial ground.
3: That's right. Perhaps it's best that we don't know the actual location of this house and that it's morbid allure. Will forever remain a mystery.
2: Wow, Greg, that is a disturbing, disturbing, disturbing story. For my story, our final tale, I'm going to take us to the other end of the social spectrum, because after all, we can't really have a show on the Gilded Age without talking about one of these big families you were just dismissing. The ones, the ones with all the money. For this is the tale Of the glowing lights at the Vanderbilt Mausoleum. Well, the
3: Vanderbilts are kind of the first family of Staten Island. So can I assume that's where we're heading? We
2: are. We're going to Staten Island in the 1880s. And the village of New Dorp, which is near the island's eastern edge. Now, New Dorp was a prominent town in the late 19th century. And this one family had an extra large presence here, of course, the Vanderbilts. Now, we've talked about the Vanderbilts in a few other shows. We have a, a show on Staten Island. We did a show on ferries. They're hugely responsible for the ferry. Right. But for those of you who have forgotten your Vanderbilt history, it all started with a fellow named Jan Ertzen, who immigrated in 1650 to New Netherlands from the Dutch village of Bilt, which was near Utrecht. Once here, his name morphed. Uh, forget- Ertzen, he became known as Vanderbilt or Vanderbilt. Now stick with me, Greg. Mm-hmm. Jan's great 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 grandson lots of greats there was Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was born nearly a hundred and fifty years later, in seventeen ninety four, On Staten Island. He would start a ferry service, of course, as a teenager and develop that into an extraordinary transportation empire uh, on water, but then, of course, on rails. You know, he built and would consolidate railways into the mighty New York Central and Harlem River Railway. Yes, from his simple periogre, he grew an empire to include a vast network
3: of railroads.
2: And build an enormous fortune. The family also held real estate and farms including a massive 186-acre farm here in New on Staten Island. In the 1850s, Cornelius directed his eldest son, William Henry Vanderbilt, to take care of the farm's business and to turn it around and make it a success. In Eighteen seventy-seven. His father Cornelius died, and he left behind a one hundred million dollar fortune to his family. A hundred million dollars, Greg. That's not translated to two thousand sixteen dollars. A hundred oh, wow. million dollars in eighteen seventy-seven.
3: However, there are no creepy aspects to this. I think the
2: Vanderbilt farm was probably a quite lovely place. Well, th- stay with me because mm-hmm. things are about to get a little bit creepier. Because nearby in New Dorp sat the Moravian Church. Now, the Moravian Church is the second oldest church on Staten Island. It was founded in 1742. By the 19th century, generations of Vanderbilts had been attending services at this church. Generations of Vanderbilts had also become permanent residents of the property as well because the church also held a 100-acre cemetery that would be enlarged by 13 acres during the 19th century thanks to the Vanderbilts, thanks to Cornelius first and then later William, his son. But they were also planning for their own private cemetery, and they, they planned to erect an imposing and private family mausoleum. They already had a family tomb because Cornelius, uh, father, was already, was already buried. Mm-hmm. But it was off in the public part of the cemetery. But that wasn't big enough for the family because mm-hmm. the family was growing. And it also wasn't grandiose enough because, you know, the family was the wealthiest in the nation. They deserved yeah. and needed to have something that was befitting of them. As was the style of the Gilded Age. And so William, he took charge of this new mausoleum project in his later years And he hired only the very best for it. Richard Morris Hunt, the famous Beaux-Arts architect Mm -hmm. who designed many of the family's giant mansions along Fifth Avenue and uh, whose Fifth Avenue facade of the Metropolitan Museum of Art is still with us today. As is the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. He was hired to design the mausoleum and Frederick Law Olmsted, the famous landscape architect and central park planner... Uh, was hired to design the land around the mausoleum and the the pathway and the lands leading up to the mausoleum. And it was placed here in this private land that had been handed over to the cemetery by the family. Private, because you can only access it by passing through these imposing iron gates that you'll find at the end of a small shaded road amidst other tombs and surrounded by forests. Once you unlatch and pass through the gates... A paved pathway works its way through the wooded area, up a steep hill, winding higher until you reach a grand structure that seems like something plucked from ancient Rome, with steps leading up to three giant arched doorways, portals, that were topped with two small domes. This gorgeous structure, constructed and completed during the 1880s at a cost of $300,000, is one of the only remaining examples of Richard Morris Hunt's work in New York City, a fact that gives it extra architectural mm-hmm. significance.
3: So William Vanderbilt hired these men in mm-hmm. the 1880s to build this sumptuous structure, the eternal resting
2: place of the Vanderbilts. Did he himself live to see it completed? Unfortunately not, because he died on December eighth, eighteen 1885, a year before the mausoleum had been completed. So he was interred in the massive family tomb down in the public part of the cemetery with his famous father Cornelius. And until the completion of the mausoleum, detectives were stationed outside the tomb to guard it because the public was visiting and they were intrigued as well to visit this new mausoleum that was under construction. A year went by, uh, during which time Hunt and Olmsted finished at least enough of their work to move Vanderbilt's body to its new final resting place. And on December 4th, 1886, nearly a year after his passing, the New York Times reported, quote, the body of William H. Vanderbilt was removed yesterday from the receiving vault in Moravian Cemetery at Newdorp to its final resting place in the massive granite mausoleum on the highest part in the cemetery. The utmost precautions were taken to secure secrecy in the removal of the body, and only the detectives who have been guarding the remains, the cemetery employees, and three members of the Vanderbilt family were present when the vault was opened. The casket was withdrawn and solemnly, but without religious ceremony, escorted by the detective guard to the mausoleum. The great gate of the tomb was unlocked, and the key was given to the Vanderbilt family. The detective guard was removed from the receiving vault and placed on duty at the mausoleum, where they were seen at a late hour last night, pacing before the tomb, with revolvers in their belts. Now, would all the Vanderbilts be interred here for eternity? Yes, 13 years later, in September of 1889, William's son, Cornelius II, who, by the way, was Gloria Vanderbilt's grandfather, Mm -hmm. had taken over the, the railroad and died early at 55 years old. He, too, was interred at the mausoleum, and so it would go for generations. On Christmas Day of 1930... Vandals attacked the mausoleum. It seemed that a number of them stole a sledgehammer from a tool shed and attacked the limestone doors. The Times reported, Detective Thomas Lynch said that the outer doors of the vault were cracked and the bronze reliefs defaced, as if the marauders had used a sledgehammer. However, they were unable to gain entry. Tracks in the snow indicated that there was more than one person at the mausoleum, although the exact number was not disclosed. Detective Lynch said that nothing of value could be stolen from the mausoleum, Commodore Vanderbilt and his descendants. William Schutzendorf, a real estate agent in charge of the Vanderbilt family properties on Staten Island, said he believed the intruders had attempted to steal some of the 20 or more bodies in the mausoleum and hold them for ransom. Well, the family repaired the mausoleum, and it continued to serve as a resting place for the family and as a tourist destination for some curiosity seekers. Who would make that trek to Moravian Cemetery follow that twisting pathway to those iron gates? Unfortunately, and tragically, one June day in 1967, a group of three young sisters from Staten Island made this trip. They were visiting a family grave here in the cemetery, and then they decided to go up and visit the Vanderbilt Mausoleum. And on their way back, when when they were locking the gate door behind them, that heavy gate door broke off of its hinges and came down upon one of the sisters, tragically killing her. And it was because of this sad, sad occurrence in 1967 that the family decided to just lock the doors for good and really giving access to this mausoleum only to those members of the family who visited with a key. But there are also, of course, lots of stories that were never reported to the police. There were some people who would just visit the gates while others found ways of trespassing. And of course, they all if you believe their stories visited in the dark of nights there was that group of visitors who approaching the heavy gate saw a faint glow they kept their distance and they waited and they watched and saw it saw this light grow brighter and form into the glowing shape of a young woman with long flowing hair there was another group A young group of trespassers who told of approaching the tomb in the dark, silently making their ascent toward the mausoleum, when they were stopped cold in their tracks by a baby's scream. And then there was the night when a small group approached the tomb, determined to reach it, It was dark, but they could make it out before them, a grand structure, the size of a church, sitting in darkness, surrounded by nature. They had made it, but wait, they weren't alone. Standing right next to them was a man dressed in a formal suit. They gasped and he was gone, vanished into the darkness. Now today, Moravian Cemetery is a beautiful place to visit and I actually had it out there yesterday and it really is enchanting the way that, you know, there are these narrow lanes twisting either way around these small family plots and footpaths. I would advise people not to follow the Google Map uh, instruction because <laughs> you can Google Vanderbilt Mausoleum and it will take you to something that is not at all the Vanderbilt Mausoleum. Well, ghosts can manipulate Google Maps. That's no problem.
3: <laughs> so how did you find Google it? Google Maps. <laughs> so how did you find it?
2: I found a security guard who was making the rounds, and I asked him for directions, and he laughed at me and said, well, you know, all you can see are the gates. And I said, oh, I know. I'm just, I'm just a weirdo who wants to see the gates. <laughs> and he showed me where to go, and I, I headed down to a line of much smaller family tombs, and approach the gates. And they really are an incredible sight to behold. And they are not marked. And I looked in at that winding path before me. And that's as far as I got. Although it was worth the trip. However, Greg, there is one more legend that I should probably tell you about just hmm. in case you do get access uh, via the official routes. As a member of the Vanderbilts or an yes. adjacent just in case you, I don't know, marry into one of the eligible Vanderbilt <laughs> bachelors. But it, but just in case you do gain access and visit the mausoleum someday, don't expect your photos to come out as expected. Numerous visitors have reported that funny things develop when they try to take photos of the mausoleum. Lights appear where there had certainly been darkness. and And curiously, Sometimes people posing in front of the structure simply disappear when the photo is processed. And yes, sometimes, Greg, in the photographs of the mausoleum, other uninvited faces appear.
3: Join us on the blog for images of some of the things that we've spoken about that you can't see with your own eyes. Pictures of the Casanova mansion, including some of the subterranean tunnels, and pictures, of course, of the Vanderbilt mausoleum. You can check those out at the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week,
2: whether you live here or not. See you real soon.